Let me first tell you the plan for this series. The idea is that this evening we'll discuss some aspects of marriage in general that apply to men and women. We'll have to try and cover some specifics for men and some specifics for women. It could be that it'll be less effective than doing it privately, separately, but we'll do what we can. Next week we'll try to have... We'll try and look at issues that we didn't cover this evening. And you are welcome to ask questions. Let's hold the questions this evening to get through some of the basic principles, since it's a two-part series, that's the idea. If you're embarrassed to ask a question, first of all, we'll understand that anyone asking a question is asking about somebody else's marriage. And not, <laughs> not them. <laughs> we'll all know that. But in case you think your husband may recognize your voice, or <laughs> So then you can send the question up in written form and I'll destroy the handwriting afterwards. You can send them up this week also and if it's something that needs to be explained that I omitted to do, I'll try and do it. And if not, we'll keep them. And next week also we'll try and cover areas that are of specific interest to people that we didn't cover or that I omitted to mention. <clears throat> the most important thing to note here is that we have to have a separate session for men and women separately to discuss the more intimate side of marriage, which is where... A lot of the principles that we'll try and discuss this evening need to be handled specifically and in much more depth. But it's just not the right forum to do that. And what's been suggested is that we will have a session <coughs> where I personally will be happy to speak to men only and only to married men. And the Santon community, the Santon branch of Al-Samaya has offered to host that since most of the people who come to the Shirem, they are married. And so we'll set up at a date that hasn't been specified yet We'll set up a meeting where we'll have <coughs> married only, or at least married men only, and the women will meet separately on the same occasion, and so we'll save for that occasion a Jewish discussion <coughs> of that area. Specifically because that area is the most important, uh, probably the most important single element of this discussion, and we just can't go into it here. <coughs> and secondly, because it's so badly misunderstood. The things we'll discuss this evening I'm picking out because they're badly misunderstood, but that area is explicitly understood the opposite of what it should be. And the halakha works that write about it talk in a fashion that one has to deeply understand in order not to be misled. And therefore, we cannot complete this discussion of the Jewish view of marriage, <coughs> at least if you're married, without that session <coughs> specifically. So, again, you, what we need is the two parts of this course, and then we'll need that specifically and separately. <coughs> Secondly, I'd very much like to try and confine the discussion, or at least emphasize, the areas that are of practical importance. Not so much, although Monday night is supposed to be mysticism night, but let's try and confine it to the things that are of practical importance because Jewish marriage is in tremendous pain at the moment. There's hardly a family, hardly a family, where the marriages could even be considered normal, let alone sparkling and the center of a person's life and the center of happiness, unfortunately. So let's try and approach it this way. Let's first try and study some of the fundamental spiritual principles, just as a framework, briefly, and just as a framework, in order to build a practical site, practical application. <clears throat> and also in order to fulfill our obligation, our tradition of speaking words of Torah, so that we won't turn this into a practical psychology or counseling session. Let's try and understand the principles, and then we'll see if we can apply them in practice and emphasize that side. And finally, a lot of what I might say may say, intend to say, was covered a year ago when we had a similar series and <coughs> I presume that people who are here, who were here on that occasion don't mind revision, doesn't do any harm <coughs> to revise. In fact, this is a shear that you need to go over at least once a month. You should make a, get a recording of this shear, 
nobody can maintain even a pretense of normality in marriage for more than about a month before divorce seems preferable. And therefore, every month at least, if you are an expert at it every month, and if you're not, then every week about, you need to go over this type on your way to work, and especially again on your way home from work. And then you, you revise the principles, and it may last you for another few days. At the same time that you revise the type, you make a copy, and you leave it in your wife's place where she won't miss it, so that around about the same time that you're revising it, she's revising it, and then you have a hope of lasting until a month later or a week later when you revise it again. <coughs> if I forget to cover some important areas that I covered on that occasion, you could note that the cassette that was recorded on that occasion, and it exists in the Awesome Earth Library under a two-part heading, first is called Marriage, Mystical and Practical, and the second is called Marriage, the Role of Woman which goes into the whole understanding, which I don't think we'll have time for now, of the specific greatness and beauty and depth of a Jewish woman and the part that she plays in the redemption, apart from in a marriage, but also in the redemption, the future of the history of the world, was discussed as a separate subject then, which we may not do now. Now let's try and understand some of the specifics. This is not an easy discussion. The place to begin here is to understand what is the Jewish and spiritual, a lot of this is universal, you don't have to be Jewish for a lot of this, a lot of it you have to be Jewish for, a lot of it you don't have to be Jewish. This, these are universal principles, most of what we'll discuss are universal principles that you will see apply even if you're not Jewish, and you'll see that are practical common sense. If you understand with a little bit of objectivity what's happening in marriage, then you'll see that these things make sense without having to be, <coughs> without having to be studied. But we try and crystallize them into explicit form, so that our vested interest and the lower self that doesn't allow us to see these things clearly is uh, stilled for a while so that we can see our own behavior objectively. The second difficulty here is that we have been so miseducated in this area by the secular Western model of what a marriage is, which is exactly the opposite of a Jewish marriage, exactly the opposite on all counts of what a Jewish marriage should be, of what a human marriage should be, but certainly a Jewish marriage. And therefore we have here to counteract many ideas that are familiar to our thinking. And this is not easy to do. Perhaps the only way to do it is by revision. So again, you may have to go over these ideas. But let's see if we can state the idea. ideas. The first set of axioms or principles that we need to study by way of spiritual or mystical background are as follows. The spiritual principle is that a man and a woman are two opposite creatures. That's the first mystical principle. The secular world does not accept that. The secular world believes that actually two different biological varieties of the same thing. And actually there's a thrust in modern secular society to try and identify, to try and live in a unity of identity. That uh, two both sexes are just different expressions of the same thing. This leads to the idea, for example, just to take one example, that's a problem in marriage, leads to the idea that marriage is a partnership. That means I've got my obligations and duties, you've got and my rights, and you've got your obligations and your rights. That's explicitly not the Jewish point of view. There's no such thing as a partnership. Marriage is not supposed to be regarded as a partnership. It's got nothing to do with the other person's obligations, what they're supposed to be doing. A person's supposed to enter marriage thinking only about what my obligations are. We'll try and study this in more detail. So it's got nothing to do with a partnership. And certainly nothing to do with a partnership between two similar beings. <clears throat> the first thing to understand to make a marriage successful is that the person you're living with is exactly the opposite. Exactly. Couldn't be further from the way you function. <clears throat> Most people who married for more than a month will tell you that that's 
<clears throat> but if we can understand it, we'll see how it works. The reason we want to discuss the subject, apart from being yet to we also want to understand the subject because we understand how it is that the person functions in an opposite mode to the way you do, someone from the opposite sex. Obviously, you can start making the effort to function the way they need you to function, which is what marriage is all about. And not start making demands that they should function the way that you'd like to function. That side of the discussion is especially relevant to women. <clears throat> because a woman has the maturity usually and the depth and the sense of responsibility to be able to adjust, to accommodate a man's needs, whereas men usually don't have that greatness. Don't usually. Try and discuss this also. <clears throat> so let's understand as follows. The opposite nature of being a man and being a woman, <clears throat> we don't have time to prove these things, but we'll just try and state the case. Actually, the mystics say that if you understand these things clearly, they don't need to be proved because you actually experience them. <clears throat> and even in this crazy generation where the values have been inverted and nothing is the way it should be, even then, many of these ideas come through in a way that even in this mixed-up generation, the youth of this generation, you can still identify these forces operate. And the axiom is as follows. The nature of man and woman being opposite, and we refer to this many times in this shirim, is as follows. Spiritually or mystically, a man represents a constellation of spiritual forces that are defined something as follows. Just to define it would take all evening, but let's see if we can get a bit of a feel for what it is. The words are inadequate, but something like this. What it means to be male, and again we're going to get into complications here because not all men are male. Fortunately, in this generation, <coughs> has been taken to extremes. But not all men who should be functioning as men and are functioning explicitly, outwardly as men, actually function in the male mode emotionally. And women also vice versa. And you see that, actually, if you really want to be accurate about it, every personality has a number of different, let's say, wavelengths. Some are more close to the spectrum of maleness, and some are more close to the spectrum, the side, the end, of femaleness, even in one personality. And actually, a marriage is a very amazing enmeshing of characteristics in the personalities, spectrum of characteristics in the personalities that actually are very, very interesting. When you see a specific marriage, you'll see that what we've said here is not true overall. It's true in specific areas, and it may be that the man manifesting the male here and the female the female, it may be vice versa in another characteristic, but we haven't got time to, we can't take apart each of those subdivisions. What we'll do here is just state the overall principle. You'll see that overall it's true, and you'll see that in most of the subdivisions it's true also. But the idea here is to grasp the principle, and the principle is as follows. Being male <coughs> means the ability to generate energy. That's what it means. It means the ability to generate something new. A spark of something new. We'll try and illustrate it as best we can. The ability, the desire to create something new spiritually, which that newness, that energy has the potential to be many things. That's a man's strength, and that's a man's love. A woman's ability, what's called being female in the mystical or spiritual world, what's called being female, the mystics say, is the ability not to generate new energy, or a new spark, but it's the amazing ability to pick up a spark that, it is, that has been struck in the world, and before the spark dies, to fan it into a flame, and to make it alive and real. You see, the, the, put another way, a man's positive ability is that he can generate many sparks. But each one's only a spark. If there won't be a woman to pick it up and make it real and live, then it'll die. His beauty and, 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 if you want to call it the positive side, not really accurate, but let's call it the positive side of being male, is that he can put out tremendous spread of energy into the world. 
But the negative side of being male is that he can't make any of it real. If he could, it would weaken his ability to make many things happen. If I illustrate it, it will be clearer. The positive side of being a woman is that she can make a thing real. She can see it through until it's real and finished and whole. The negative side of being a woman is that she limits herself to just one place to do that. She can't be involved in many places at once. Let's try and illustrate that to make it a bit clearer. First, we'll illustrate it the way the mystics always do, the way the mystics only do, by looking at the biological. We have to stop here for a second to mention that before we say this, you have to know that the spiritual or mystical axiom is that the body is a reflection of the mind. That means that the spiritual principle operating in the abstract world is manifest in the way the body works. And if you want to understand the spiritual world, you must only look at what the body does. Because the body functions that way, because it's condensed into looking the way it does, because in the mystical world, those are the way the forces operate. A man's body looks and functions the way it does, and on a higher level, his physical drives function the way they do, and on a higher level, his emotions function the way they do, and on a level higher than that, his intellect functions the way it does, because in the abstract spiritual dimension, that's what maleness is. <coughs> and a woman, <coughs> similarly, in her side of reality. Which means that if you want to study these things, the most accurate and reliable place to study them is you look at the body. Now, if you look at the body, and again, it's difficult to go into too much detail, but I think it should be clear if we put it at this level. If you look at the body, you'll see that that's exactly the way the forces operate. There's nothing similar, if you have perception, there's nothing similar about the way the body's functioning. The way a child is produced in the world, and that's what the mystics emphasize again and again, is what we're talking about. We're talking about two people getting together to form a third thing, at first level, that third thing is the relationship between them. That's the first child, the most important one, the love that they build between them. Beyond that is the children that they produce in physical, tech, real time terms. But the first thing is what happens when the two of them form a third unit, which is the combination of the two of them. So when two people get together and form a child, you'll see that the contribution of the male and the female are exactly opposite. Couldn't be more dissimilar. Let's try and understand. What the male contributes, if you hear this well now. What the male contributes to the formation of a child has all the characteristics we mentioned before, and each of them is the opposite of what the woman gives. What the male gives is very short-lived. The mystics say that it's the smallest thing that could be in terms of time and space. The seeds that will become a child that the male produces are infinitesimal in time and space. The man's involvement space-wise and time-wise in the formation of a child is infinitesimal compared to the generation time of the child. The pregnancy lasts months and months and months that the woman has to do. But the function that the male has to do is exactly the opposite. Are you with me? The male function exactly. That means the male is as close, the man, a man, is as close as you can get to the spiritual dimension. He only just enters the physical and then he's gone. As soon as he's done, the, put in the energy or the electricity or the spark that will be a child or whatever the new thing is, then he's unable to continue. You know, hard to be more honest to understand. But in that moment, that infinitesimal time and space that the man's involved in the formation of a child, he puts into the world, contributes to the woman, the ability to create almost unlimited children. You're probably aware that biologically, the male seed in all the animal kingdom, human, the male seed is almost infinite, it numbers in the millions. But a woman, when she ovulates, puts out only one seed, if you're aware of that. In fact, if you look at a girl child being formed embryologically, in the formation of the embryo of a woman, of a child, when a little girl is being formed, her ovaries contain at that point all the ova, all the eggs, all the seeds, all the cells that will ever be ovulated during her menstrual cycles 
in the rest of her life. Remarkable thing. If a woman menstruates repeatedly until she's 50 or so, she will use every single oven that she has. Whereas a male is exactly the opposite. Always more being produced and always used by the million. You need your head red if you think that these are accidents of, you know, after a few million years of gorillas bumping into each other. <coughs> then it ended up looking this way by accident. The point of being male is that it's only just entering the physical, but in that instant that he enters the physical realm before he's unable to continue, he puts an energy in that's, that's multi-potential. The energy could be m taken up in millions of different ways. But when the woman takes the man's energy, she takes just one. And she puts it together with just one of hers. And she produces just one child. <coughs> is the idea clear? In other words, there's much more to say about it, but we don't have time. Let's just take the basic idea. The idea here is this. That a man's specialty, what he is spiritually, is multi-potential energy, but as energy. As the ability to create something new. But as soon as it's in the world as something that could create something new, he's unable to continue. That's where the woman comes in. She doesn't have multi-potential energy. She's bent intensely on doing just one thing and doing it properly. She takes that one spark that she chooses and she makes it one real and whole child. The difficulty of being a woman is to try and think of this on a biological level, emotional level. The difficulty of being a woman is that, let's try and understand it carefully now. Let's, let's try and put that picture now into perspective. Let's do it this way. The mystics say that if you take this analogy in the physical world, not an analogy, it's the concrete expression of the spiritual forces, if you take it into spiritual terms, emotional terms, you see that men function like this. They always need to express their energy in a multi-potential way. If you want to put it crudely, one woman just isn't enough, usually. Because that's a limitation of his spiritual energy. Now, we'll try and explain how this manifests exactly. But a man needs to be expressing himself in many places and many ways. He needs to bring, in, bring out all his energy, always new. And as soon as it's been brought out, it's not good enough anymore. He needs to bring out something else new. <clears throat> Whereas a woman, what she wants to do is not move from flips from one thing to another. She wants to build one thing and consolidate it as deeply as possible, and most beautifully and deeply as possible. Let's try and go one step further. It means, if you look in emotional terms in the relationship, the beauty of being a man is that he has always new energy to put in. But the danger of being a man is that he may look for new sources, new places to put his energy and not put his energy loyally into one place. Got to be more explicit. Whereas a woman, her beauty in marriage is that loyalty is her natural quality. She wants to relate to one place and make it as beautiful and deep and rich as possible. The danger of being a woman, each one is no better or worse over here. Each one has his Positivity and his danger. Her positivity and her danger. The danger of being a woman, however, is that because she's able to freeze a thing, to consolidate a thing, to build a thing into reality, which means make it tangible, make it finite, the danger of being a woman is that she could stifle to death. She could be so intent on freezing and holding and having and making finite and limited that she could freeze something to death, especially a man. It means that the skill needed to be a woman, the incredible skill of being a Jewish woman in marriage, is to be a force that can absorb a man's energy so deeply and so richly that she's big enough and deep enough to absorb all the new energy that he can put out and he wouldn't have to look anywhere else. How does she do that? She does it by absorbing energy in such a way that she doesn't stifle any of it. She holds it only long enough to make it real and then it must pass on and she must absorb something new. The mystics say that's obvious. If you look at a pregnancy, you'll see that when a woman <coughs> builds a pregnancy, what happens is 
the wrong way, the spiritual negativity would be if she would take the spark and keep it as it is, but she doesn't do that. As soon as she absorbs the spark of what it is, she builds it into something more, and more and more and more, and finally when it becomes something big enough to sustain its own life, she has to tear herself away from it, even though it's painful and it's dangerous, it's a painful, dangerous experience, she has to do that. And a woman has to do that the rest of her life when a child goes to certain age, she has to separate again in another way, and older and so forth and so forth. That's a woman's greatness that she can do that, and that's her pain. In other words, the skill of being a woman is that she has to give life to a thing, give it physical actuality, make the thing tangible, but never sit at that point, never, never, never freeze or stifle or lock herself in to the mode or the stage that she's reached. It's a tremendous skill. It means that she has to learn to control her own death, which is making a thing real and tangible and finite. And as soon as it is that, make it to the next level of that thing. And then the next and the next. Amazing. But she has that ability. A man needs to control his ability, his danger, is that because he always needs something new, it's amazing, at least 90% of the women are smiling. They understand exactly. The men are trying to figure out what all this means. You go and ask your wife to explain it. Who do you think told me what to say? A man needs to know how to put all his energy into the world but not waste it. To put it into a place of loyalty where every speck and every spark will be absorbed and built into something real. There are many sins that the Torah describes where men can be involved in wastage of their own spiritual potential, wastage of seed. I want to go into too much detail here. The root of them spiritually is this, is this problem that we're discussing now. It's not because of some medieval fears or belief. The idea is that a man is then taking his energy. Each incredible, tiny, infinitesimal amount that could be a new human being and wasting it in the world. Letting it go out and die. And of course, that's the sin of this generation. That's what a marriage is. A marriage is taking two forces, taking the spiritual force of what it is to be a man, and making sure that every ounce, every drop of his energy, of what he is spiritually and physically, finds a home in a place that can make it real in the world, so that nothing ever gets wasted. He can never do it by himself, and she can't do it without him. But together, nothing's wasted and everything's built. Of course, all we're describing really is the relationship between Hashem and the world, or between Hashem, God, and the Jewish people. Obviously, and that's of course for the feminists to understand why we always describe Hashem as being male. Not because we're not feminist in our thinking. It's because the spark of multipotential, incredible, unlimited power of giving energy is always the male dimension. And the world, which is that which makes it tangible and finite and real, that's always the female dimension. <coughs> And of course, one without the other. You have nothing. That's why Hashem saw fit to build the world. And to relate to it the way it does. So think about that. Now let's take some of the practical expressions of this idea. Are we together still? Are we together? There's much, much more to say about it. It's a fantastic subject. It's the basis of all Kabbalistic thinking. It's the basis of much of Torah thinking. What it means male, what it means female. But let's try and take some of the practical applications since that's by far the most urgent thing to do. Some other occasion we can discuss more of the mystical <coughs> correlates of this idea. In practical terms, it means the following thing. Again, broad generalizations, but you'll see, unfortunately, that in most marriages, these are where the problems lie. If that's the way it works biologically, then that's the way it works emotionally, spiritually, intellectually also. But let's focus on the emotional dimension, because that's the biggest vested interest here. Physical drives, translating themselves into the emotional level. That is where, that is where this thing applies itself in the most dangerous form. So let's try and analyze what a man is. Broad brushstrokes. And then we'll try and analyze what a woman is in marriage. We'll try and point out why we get on so badly. The divorce rate now is... The, the divorce rate in good old-fashioned Johannesburg, Jewish community, is now more than one in two. 
That means that that means that your children, or you if you're young, your marriage has less than a 50% chance of survival. We're talking about good, normal marriages now, and many of these divorces are happening now in the first year. That's what it is now. There's another problem of divorce when a man reaches age 50, 55, which is another problem related to the same subject. If we get time, we'll talk about it. Also, there's a rash, a spate of those going on now. But many, many divorces are taking place now among people who have been married for three months, nine months, 11 months, a year or two. Which means something is desperate here. Desperate. I mean, we've reached a level where we can so pervert our sense of responsibility. We can enter such a shattered situation with such ease. The pain has to be enormous. have a situation now where, where divorce in the first few months of marriage means that a young man stood under the chuppah and he said in so many words that I hereby declare that in front of many witnesses that I commit myself to you forever. That no matter what happens, I'll stay by you. That's what he said. That's what he meant. And a few months later, less than a year later, he's walk out. Something more attractive <coughs> crossed his mind. And the problem that that raises in terms of what human personality has come to, what one's word, what one's commitment means these days, and what one's idea of relating to another human being in terms of giving one's life to someone entirely. It's a radical kitruk, it's a radical criticism of where we've, what we've arrived at. Part of the reason is because we spent our youth relating so superficially that one more woman tell a little bit more of a, of a lie in this case than you did on the previous occasions. But actually she doesn't really mean much more than those that lasted one night or two nights or a week. That's what it means. And women have brought themselves to the situation where they've allowed that to be done. They've allowed themselves to be battered into total inhumanity. That's what Jewish women have done. They've allowed themselves to be used in relationships outside of marriage, before marriage, to the point that they have nothing left to give of themselves. So that by the time a young man and woman these days decide to get married, the two of them aren't sure why they're doing it. So actually, there's nothing new that's going to happen here except new obligations. The tragic, tragic anxiety that's prevalent among young Jewish girls now, because they enter intimate relationships, specifically, explicitly prohibited by Torah law, with young men, who usually take it much less seriously than they do. And then after the relationship drags on for a while, and they start thinking about marriage, they suddenly realize that he isn't thinking about marriage. Why should he think about marriage? It only brings obligations. Right now he has all the privileges of a marriage. If he would get married now, he would continue the same privileges and take an obligation. doesn't make sense. Why should he do it? And very often when she mentions marriage, it disappears. The last case I was associated with was a couple who'd been together since they were 18, for 11 years. When she was 29, she broached the subject of marriage and he disappeared. She meant the relationship for real. She meant she was giving the rest of her life and he hadn't thought more than one day ahead. That's what women have allowed to be done to them and that's what men have done. <coughs> so let's see if we can try and study the root of this thing. So let's understand, personality-wise, if you want to take the principles that we discussed before as being the spiritual definition of what is a man, what is a woman, let's try and apply it on the personality plane and see its practical expression. 
So the Bala Musa, those who translate mystical ideas into, into practical, real-life terms, they put it something like this. A man's spiritual need to express his newness, or to express his personality, to bring out everything that he has in terms of his spiritual energy, it finds expression emotionally in the following ways. <coughs> Again, this is painfully obvious. All we're trying to do is tie it down to an explanation, which is just a description in one route. You'll see that men fit into certain patterns. For example, for example, Jewish men, men in general, always have a problem with other women. That's an axiom. A normal man has a problem with other women. A kosher Jewish woman does not have a problem with other men. So I understand why. It's not because a man is feeble-minded or evil-minded. It's because a man functions always on the crest of a wave of energy that always needs to give expression to something new. And his problem is that as soon as he gives energy into something new, it's not new anymore and it's not male anymore. And therefore he needs to find a new experience, a new expression. At worst, it's why men have an ordeal with other women and why we are so careful in Torah society to keep such a very, very careful borderline and distance between men and women. Even a man is working on himself spiritually and struggling in this area. On the contrary, the mystics, the Gemara explains that the bigger a man becomes in this area, the worse his problem becomes. The more sensitive he, can, he becomes to what a human being is, to what a woman is, and to what a relationship between a man and a woman is. And the greater his spiritual power becomes, the greater his problem becomes, especially in this area. That's a, that's a man's problem. Women don't have that problem. A kosher Jewish woman has to be very, very shattered as a human being to wish to relate to a man other than a husband. In this generation, anything goes. We're not talking, we're talking about, for the moment, we're talking about normal people. Some women, I suppose, are so battered by their husband's insensitivity, they might be driven to strange things. The mystics say, the Bible must say, that even when a woman enters that field, even, even when a woman becomes provocative, even when she becomes provocative towards other men, it's so that her husband will take notice. Her desire is to build a relationship with her husband in the deepest, most precious, and most eternal way possible. That's what she wants. And a man doesn't understand it. That's in the worst situations. In the best situations, what happens is, let's hope this is the more common occurrence, in the best situations, when a man understands his responsibilities and he stays with his wife and he doesn't have an ordeal with other women that leads itself to practical expression, but what happens is he takes his wife for granted. Because as soon as the newness of the relationship is over, what happens is he takes it for granted. He's on to his next project, his next explosion of newness. His, whatever it is, it could be a hobby, a sport, his business, usually his business, whatever it is. That becomes important. Which means, and I'm talking here about the best marriages, not marriages that have collapsed. In marriages that are intact, what happens is, the axiom is that in a good marriage like that, a woman is doing everything that she's doing for her husband, at least at the back of her consciousness, she carries him with her at all times, a woman who loves correctly and expresses what a female dimension of love is. But a man, the husband, is not thinking about his wife. Sorry to have to tell you this. This begins, if you're lucky, from about the second day of marriage. Unfortunately. So what happens... If you walk up to such a man on the street and you ask him if he loves his wife, he'll tell you definitely, yes, he'll rush out, he'll blast flowers. But he wasn't thinking about it just then. He was thinking about his next million, about whatever it is that his next ordeal is. That's the way men function. Again, it's not because they're evil or don't know how to love. 
It's because they need them. You'll see it in many other ways. As we pointed out here before, it's why men never grow up. Men never grow up. There's a wonderful, there's a very interesting, very interesting book written by an Eastern mystic. And we're not here to discuss Eastern mysticism, but it so happens that it's true. He writes over there, book on education, he makes there the following statement. I have a suspicion that actually he was Jewish, got a Jewish surname. But anyway, it's an Eastern sect. He writes the following statement. A woman is a woman, but a man is a child always. That's what he writes. That means that men never grow up. You'll find that men of 50 are playing with the same toys that they were playing with when they were 15. They just have a few noughts on the end in terms of the price now. The bigger varieties of what they were, smaller varieties back then, but basically that's what it is. He always needs something new. And when you hear the rationalization, why well, he needs this thing, explain to you why actually it's cheap and actually it's practical. But again, he has that immaturity, let's call it that, that childishness, that childlike quality, because he needs to give expression to that newness that's in his personality all the time. <coughs> a Jewish woman, on the other hand, gets into trouble, not because she looks elsewhere, but because she demands that her husband should live up to his responsibilities in a way that he can't do, at least not when she tells him. When she complains and demands it of him, that's the surest way to drive a man into desperation. The trick of working with a man is to tell him what to do, but to make him think he thought of it himself. That's, that's what a woman has to understand. You can translate it, if you want to put it into crude terms, we're trying to be practical. You want to put it into crude terms, you could say that this idea that we've been talking about spiritually as an explosion of newness and all that, you could put it basically as ego. What in Western society we call ego, a man is basically an inflamed bundle of ego. Well, usually. Normal man. Usually. And a woman has to understand that and not come into conflict with that. If she tries to come into conflict with that ego, which is what most wives, most wives, fall prey to doing, then you have a bitter conflict, the sparkle and the love goes out immediately, and you have from then on a lifetime, a lifelong battle. The place where you don't find this, I must just mention it, I must mention this, the place where you don't find this is in the previous generation. If you look in South African Jews, in our parents and certainly our grandparents' generation, you'll see that they were still close to being normal. In those generations, there was a sense of responsibility. I'm not saying that the marriages were full of sparkle and love. Many times, in fact, probably the majority of times, the marriages were not full of love and sparkle and excitement. They weren't scintillating things many times, but they remained responsible. That means they, they retained their sense of commitment to each other and to the family unit and their sense of dignity and respect for each other. But at least in the external sphere manifestation. The only difference, the difference is that this generation, they don't have the self-control and the, the dignity and the sense of responsibility to maintain commitments that they make. And therefore, everything collapses just as soon as it begins. So we're talking now specifically about this generation where these problems are manifest. Explicitly. Let's take the next practical step of what a person should do about these. This is a very a flash overview of one dimension of the problem. The endless discussion, this, the misunderstanding crosses all subdivisions of the personality, starting in the intimate area, extending through all these things that we've discussed. But let's take at least this idea that we've mentioned and try and see its practical expression, and let's try and discuss now some of the obligations, what a person should do to overcome this. If a person hears this well, you could transform your marriage from being an ordeal, or at best something that you stuck with, into being an incredible spiritual 
rocketing experience from now on for the rest of your life. That's the difference. And as they all point out, if your marriage is that, then your life will be that. If your marriage is not functioning correctly, everything else is sour. But if that's functioning correctly, everything else will be fine. So if you want to know where life begins, it begins here. Where successful living begins, it begins here. The Torah educators point out that even children don't come first. If you really want to know. Children don't come first in the home. The sacrifice of children is not correct. First, it should be for each other. The only thing is, the children should see that happening. And if that's done correctly, the children will be fine. So you see how important this discussion is. Let's try and put this now to practical. We try to understand the background. We try to understand how it applies itself in the personality. Let's try and see if we can put it into practical terms what you're supposed to do about it. When you walk out of here, what is it you're supposed to actually do? That's where the hard part comes in. And again, I try to say some of it indirectly because the subject should be discussed with men only so that it can be done thoroughly full blast. And women, full blast. So that they, the trouble is, when you talk like this, the women are going to go home and say, you see what he said you have to do? And the man's going to say, you see what he said you have to do? Instead of thinking, well, try to focus now on the next few minutes of discussion on what it is that each one of us is supposed to do, not what they're supposed to do. Forget time, we'll explain that also. Let's start with the man. So the books that write about Jewish marriage, the sources, both mystical and practical, they say things like this. And they try and take a selection of ideas to try and illustrate the point. There are many good books, you can read about it, you can get the references from me, look in the library. A man has to relate in the following way. The first thing he has to remember is that his tendency is to take his wife for granted and stop thinking about other things, and that her one need in life is not to be taken for granted. Understand? A normal woman demands, emotionally, demands a relationship of total explicit dedication. Total love, total commitment, and making it explicit all the time. That's what a normal kosher Jewish woman wants and needs. They go so far as to say that her deepest need is a man who loves her, and shows that he loves her. Just don't understand this. First of all, if you look in Aloha, you'll see it's obvious. The obligations in Jewish halacha are that a man has to dedicate himself to his wife to make her his prime project that nothing else should interfere from the moment he marries her till the end of his life. You see it in so many ways. In Jewish law, when a Jewish army goes out to fight, if a man hasn't yet satisfied his wife assuring her that he loves her, which takes a year, first year of marriage, he doesn't go and fight. If the Jewish nation is threatened with a life or death battle, and the army gathers together to go and save the Jewish people, if a man has been married less than a year, we consider that maybe his wife hasn't yet had it proved to her how much he's dedicated to her, and he stays home. A remarkable thing. Remarkable thing. If you want to make it more explicit, you see that when a couple get married, there are seven days of obligation where they're not allowed to be separate at all. The commentaries say that if a man would marry a woman and he would venture away from her, for a few minutes she would start to have doubts that maybe he's bored with her. Maybe he doesn't find her exciting anymore, he doesn't love her. And therefore, for seven days, he must be intensely with her all the time. For a year, what's called Shana Rishona, for a year, there's a halachic obligation that he may go nowhere without her permission. He's not allowed to go to work, he's not allowed to go to yeshiva, he's not allowed to go anywhere, not out for a few minutes without her explicit permission. The idea of this year 
You, you'll be laughing after this, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let them laugh. Wait. <laughs> the idea of this year, Shana Rishona, is that a man has to work for a year. The prime task of that year is to prove to his wife that he loves her, that he finds her desirable and attractive, that he's dedicated and devoted to her, that she is the prime object of his life. And it takes a year, in the case of an ideal Jewish marriage, back in generations where people were men were men, it takes a year to assure a woman that nothing comes before her. Many of the Poiskim write that we are so bad at it today that it takes ten years, and their opinions that it never ends. Which means that if you want to know what a Jewish husband's obligation is, even if you've been married for more than a year, your obligation is to carry the consciousness. It's the hardest thing for a man to do. Even with a beautiful, loving, perfect wife, it is very hard for a man to carry around the consciousness that his wife is there all the time and that she comes first. Let's study... The, the news gets worse. Okay? Let's study... For a moment, the practical application. That's what we want to do. What's the practical application of this law? <laughs> the practical application of this law is as follows. You should never be where your wife doesn't know. You should never be where your wife doesn't know. If you will be someplace where she doesn't know, you'll be late, you must call home. Not only is an obligation marriage, it comes under the heading of Derech Eret. It's only common courtesy. You would do it if you had an appointment with somebody who was very important, who was expecting you. Why don't you do... Let's understand this. Why is it that if a man has an appointment with someone who may be a nobody in his life, he will consider it his human derech eret courtesy obligation to call and say you'll be half an hour late? So if you're going to come home half an hour late, why don't you have the same obligation? Isn't she more important? The boys can say, the only way to get the halakha right is to bear with you a consciousness, not only that she needs you all the time, and she needs to be assured of your love and affection, but that she needs you to have her in your consciousness first and foremost, always. And you can't fake that, you have to do it sincerely. You have to build into your consciousness, consciousness as a man, that the first thing that you connected with outside of yourself, the first work you have to do on yourself, is to carry your wife's emotions and consciousness around with you all the time. And not only that, but you have to carry it around with you as if not only she's there, but she's the most important person in the world and that you have to show that all the time. Not only remember it, but show it. That's the job. At least very little time for doing anything else in life. Okay? <laughs> How does it find practical expression? Let's understand. First of all, if you look at it from a common sense point of view, never mind a lucky point of view, who is the most important? Let's stop for a second. Who is the most important person in the world? There's no question you ask the most important person in the world. If the president of the country or your boss, or whoever else it is, or the chief rabbi, does something that's not ideal, right? that affects you. It's not affects you. But if your relationship with your wife is not ideal, not perfect, if there's a crack there, everything else is cracked. Everything else is fractured. That's the core. How do you show that your wife is the most important person in the world? There are frightening halakhic obligations in this area. One of them is, for example, one of them is, that strictly speaking, according to Halakha, you are not allowed to ask your wife to do you a favor. Unless you are sure she considers it a privilege and an act of love. And that cuts both ways, by the way. That's Halakha that applies on both. Because why? This is the most important honored person in the world. So she's the most important person in the world. And if you honor her more than yourself, so how could you ask her to do you a favor because it's convenient for you? 
The illustration they give is, you know, imagine the Prime Minister came to visit you. Very important person. And he arrives at your house with his entourage and his bodyguards and the whole thing. As he's about to leave, you say, Mr. Prime Minister, I know you're just going for us to dry clean on your way out of here. So would you mind... Why don't you do that? He's too honored. He's too respected. So why is it that a man sees fit to ask his wife to drop this here and drop that there and do this and do that and do that thing? Halakhically, a person's not supposed to do that because that's not the way you treat the most important person in the world. You get up and do it for her, not you ask her to do it for you. Well, actually, my wife isn't here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody sends her the type of prayer. <laughs> Everlasting curse, mystical curse on you. In a natural relationship where that love has been established, then you can ask a person to do favors. And the person will take it as a privilege and an act of love to do the favor. But first you have to get to that stage. There are many examples. Usually men make a mistake in this area. And when it comes to showing their wives that the wife is the most important person and the most loved person in the world, men are unable to show it. You find a, cr- a curious anomaly in marriage that women have a desire that men should, their husbands should tell them that they love them. I don't know if you are aware of this. But... This is usually the way it goes. Why don't you tell me you love me? <laughs> then you see he squirms very uncomfortably and he says, but I've been, I've been with you for 25 years. So what makes you... No, 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 I want you to say it. But why is he can't bring himself to say it. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Why? Because she has a need that he should love her and he should make it explicit. Sometimes it comes to an exo- a situation where she needs to extract from him the declaration that she's the most important, and he is doing the opposite. Classic scene would be, he's in the middle of a very important board meeting. A major decision's about to be taken, and millions of dollars rands are about to change hands. What happens? At the critical moment, his wife's on the line. <laughs> so the normal response, the normal male, this is how the conversation sounds, in a very tense, hissed voice. He says, I'm in the middle of a very important meeting, I'll call you back in five minutes. That's what happens. The halachic obligation is to take the phone and say loudly, Gentlemen, it's my wife. You can wait. (laughs) Why aren't you laughing? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Some of the authorities who write in this area, some of the Balimusa, the modern Poiskim, they point out even further, Why is this woman phoning in the middle of a board meeting? Repeatedly. (laughs) Because she knows she's in competition with what's going on over there. She knows that she's in competition with what her husband's doing. With his Gemara, if he learns any Sheva, it's often a problem. Or she's in competition with his business, or whatever it is that he's doing. Or his golf. Or whatever it is. After all, she sees that when she wants him to get up early in the morning to do something for her, he's exhausted from the, works, the week's work. But when he has to get up early enough to ride to Pretoria with his friends, or run to Durban or whatever it is that they do, <laughs> then somebody finds the energy. If a man would say loudly so that his wife can hear that you can all wait as my wife, she won't phone anymore in the middle of important board meetings. If it's a woman, a wife wears that problem. Very often men make a mistake even coarser than that. They are very nice to everybody outside the home. Many husbands show that problem. They are the kindest, most generous men in the world. Anyone has to ask them for a favor, they'll put themselves out to an extreme. 
But the wife knows that she dare not ask for anything that he would willingly do for anybody else. Why? Because not going her, she already taken for granted, and therefore she doesn't bring out of him the depth and the kindness, the generosity, the loving that he is able to show elsewhere. That's the norm. There are many other obligations that go around this. A man is never allowed to embarrass his wife. This cuts both ways, by the way. There is a modern style that it's considered witty and slick to make comments that put each other down, especially in front of other people. It's a very, or call each other names that are... The Rambam says if you call someone a derogatory nickname, you lose your share in the world to come. We're going to give examples. That people call each other things. Or they make comments that are slighting or cutting, especially in intimate areas, in front of other people. That's considered very witty and very hip, cool or whatever it is, and that's what it's done. It's explicitly <laughs> forbidden. A person's not allowed to do that. A person has to show extreme respect for his wife, and a wife for her husband, even more in certain ways, trying to discuss it. And especially in front of other people. They write, they say, that a woman especially needs to be shown respect in front of other people. There are things that she'll put up with, without objecting that a husband may do, showing lack of respect to her when they're in private, but she cannot tolerate that in front of other people. And even jokes, even in the slightest way, to be slighting or to be superficial when it comes to her honor or her dignity, a man's definitely not allowed to do. She's much more sensitive in that area than he is. Those are some, those are some of the obligations. If a man wants to work on it as a project, there's no more worthwhile project in the world. There's no more worthwhile project in the world. It takes repeated chazora, repetition. He has to go over this message, he has to have a little sign that he keeps in his underwear drawer or someplace that he'll see every day, at least once a week, he has to go over this thing so that he's constantly renewing his consciousness because he tends to forget this. How many people can honestly say they bring flowers as often as they did in the first two or three weeks of marriage? Or gifts? Or extend themselves to the extent that they did once? That's unacceptable. The Bala Musa writes that you have to speak to your wife the way you did before you were married. The way you spoke to your wife in front of her parents before you were married. Why don't you do that now? She needs it just as much as she needed then. She may need it more. Before you were married and you visited her home. And your hair combed. Shaved. If you shave. You know, you spoke as if you were... You, know, you, you put on a certain kind of an act. You're supposed to put on an act for the rest of your life. Children don't need the parents to focus on them. They need, they need that. But they first need to see the parents focusing on each other. I remember once I had to approach my Rebbe with a question about a child. And I was worried about certain things that would be happening to the children because of certain environmental factors. And I said to him, what can we do? Can we change this? And he said, no, it's not worth changing that. And can we do... And finally, after I asked two or three questions, he looked at me with an icy look. I'll never forget. And he said, fix yourself up. And the children will be fine. And if children see a marriage, if they learn they're the rules of respect and consideration and love and affection, and they never hear the parents disagree, ever. <laughs> They'll be fine. Let's look briefly at what a woman's supposed to do. Let's try and, we'll try and describe here, let's try and look at some of the practical areas that involve both the emotional understanding that we began with and halakhic obligations. A woman is supposed to honor her husband and carry out his wishes. A kosher Jewish woman, it says, she carries out the desire of her husband. 
It means much deeper than that. It means that she gives practical reality to all what's called Rotson, which means his spiritual power, as we discussed in the beginning. But tonight, unfortunately, we are marriages on much too desperate a state to allow ourselves the luxury of talking about the spiritual side. Let's try and work on the practical side. That means that, first of all, she treats him with the ut- utmost respect. She never says anything that's insulting or shows anything, even in the slightest look or action, that's insulting, especially when it comes to the area of his maleness and his male ego. That's the first thing. And secondly, beyond that, here's where women usually get it wrong. Usually women can see. You see, the mystics say that the one person who really knows a man is his wife. From the first hour of marriage on, he can fool other people and often does. Not usually, but often does. But a woman he never fools. His wife knows exactly who he is from the first day of marriage on. And therefore, what usually happens is she starts trying to correct him. She starts trying to make him into what he should be and what she wants him to be. And it's with a kosher and deep desire that he should achieve his potential and his greatness that she tries to bring it out of him. The problem is that a male ego, usually, doesn't like being told what to do, and certainly not by a woman, and certainly not by his wife. That's the problem. And therefore, she must not complain about anything, and certainly not about him. She has to treat him like a king. First of all, the parents should behave like king and queen. In general, children are allowed to sit in a parent's place, never allowed to use their first names. The home should be a place where the parents rule like a king and queen. The great Jewish women who have written and taught in this area, they put it very bluntly. They say that a woman can take a shmata and make a king out of him, or she can take a king and make a shmata out of him. <laughs> that's a Jewish woman's ability and that's her greatness. A woman, soft, giving creature that she is, actually has the power to make a man anything that she wants by handling him correctly. The mystics point this out by saying that a woman was created from bone. Man was created from the dust of the earth, which is soft, but a woman is created from bone which is rock hard just doesn't look that way on the surface but a woman is called Gura which means strength and she has to apply that and therefore the way a Jewish woman is supposed to treat her husband is as if he is a king she's never allowed she must never criticize or at least she must never criticize him at the time when the problem is alive but only afterwards when the problem does not exist let's just understand this briefly First of all, this applies in both directions. Let's, we're going to try here, or the, because some of these principles apply equally in both directions, I'll refer to it from the male and female points of view. Criticism in both directions, especially in the area that belongs to the other person, and we'll have to try and discuss also that there are separate roles in separate areas which takes care of this problem. Criticism in the area where the other person is supposed to be functioning, right, done incorrectly, always produces negative results. That means that if you want to criticize where you know the other person is sensitive, you have to do it in a way and at a time when they'll be thinking about the problem your way and not opposite to you. So I understand this. When a man does something wrong, his wife must not point it out at the time. Because he'll never respond positively at the time. He'll get offended and upset and dutka and it won't have, It just doesn't have any results. She must point it out at a time when he's doing that thing right. Or at a very affectionate time when that isn't the problem. They write about it most clearly in the husband's obligation to his wife. For example, let's try and... No, let's, we'll come back to this in a second. Let's just try and fulfill our duty in terms of the wife's obligation. You see, women often try to express to their husbands their, their, their disappointment in the way he's functioning in a way that only makes it worse. Uh, let's illustrate this by a practical example. A couple came to see me about a year ago. What was the problem? The problem was this. He worked very hard and they were trouble, trouble making ends meet. The woman, the wife came to see me. 
So he works very, very hard. She runs the home as a new little baby who's very difficult. Child's up most of the night. The woman is exhausted. She's learning to cope with a new baby and she's having a lot of trouble. What happens? He thinks that she does nothing. He says that she sits home painting her nails all day and doing nothing while he's out slaving to support the two of them. She thinks that he doesn't understand how hard she's working because she's exhausted. She's up all night. She can't fulfill her wife's wifely obligations in any way. She's desperately worried about how she's coping with her husband or with the child. She's exhausted and she's depressed. So what happens? This is the scene. What I hope you'll hear clearly in this is that the only one who can change this kind of situation is the wife. Okay, that's the bad news for the women. But it's also wonderful news. If anyone's going to change a vicious cycle, it has to be the woman. If this is the kind of problem. Again, men usually don't have what it takes. I'm sorry to tell you that. Men usually don't have what it takes. If a woman would understand how to be able to maneuver and function in such a way that her husband will start glowing as a man, then it automatically become what she wants him to become. The same works the other way, by the other way around, by the way. A man who treats his wife correctly, she glows. Glows all the time. So this is, this is what the scene was. So I asked this woman, what actually precipitates a violent argument? So she said, this is what happens. When he arrives home from work, she's busy with the baby. She's bathing the baby. She looks haggard and exhausted, and she's busy bathing the baby. He walks in. She doesn't look up. She makes a point of not looking up, because she wants him to see how hard she's working, how she's looking after his child. So as he walks into the house, he's this guy, he looks at this guy, says, nothing's ready. He wants a nice cool drink. He's hungry from a day at work. Nothing's ready. She's busy with a screaming baby. He doesn't look up. So the evening begins in disgust and animosity. So I said to her, what do you do about this? She says, I shout at him. I scream at him. I tell him that he doesn't appreciate me and that he's got to start appreciating me. And everything she said was correct. He must start appreciating. So a young wife is learning to cope. He must start appreciating. So I said to her, look, there's only one way out of the situation. There's only one way out of it. And this is the way. Both the baby early in the afternoon, okay? Then have a rest. Then have a bath. Dress yourself up in your best. Okay? And wait at the door. Don't wait in the kitchen. Wait at the door when you expect him. As you hear his key in the door, open the door with a smile. Look at him like you've never been so thrilled in your life to see anyone. Okay? If you have a family, you must have the children lined up also. <laughs> One child must have the newspaper ready open. <laughs> his chair, his special chair must be all ready. There must be a whiskey poured out next to it. The spaniel must have his slippers. Okay. <laughs> then you must not complain. No matter what has happened that day, no matter what kind of agony you're going through, a man does not appreciate or understand complaining. A man is a weak creature who needs to complain. But he cannot sympathize. Again, he cannot sympathize with a woman's complaining. And he never listens. A man never listens when a woman complains. He switches off emotionally and mentally immediately, and therefore you do not complain. You smile as if you had the most fantastic day, everything went correctly. You give him his whiskey, you let him relax. When he's finally relaxed, then you slam him with all that. <laughs> In other words, there is a time to be able to get through. And you'll get all the support you need. But when he's able to handle it, when you make him feel that he is the strong head of the family who can solve everyone's problems, and that he is the shoulder to lean on, when he's feeling strong enough to be that, he will be that. And then you'll be able to have the support that you need. But if as he walks in the door, thirsty and hungry and miserable and defeated by his day, and as you open the door, you start with a long, endless string 
of what's gone wrong and what he's done wrong and why he's the cause of it and how the neighbor on this side and the neighbor on that side is such a fantastic guy. By the way, the neighbor next door has got much bigger problems than you. Okay? <laughs> we think your marriage is in trouble. Yeah, what's happening on that side and that side, you, you may rest assured these days is much worse. That's for sure. That's not the way to get through to me. That marriage, I'm pleased to say, the next time I spoke to them, was a success. But she had to understand, there are many marriages, I've personally had contact with marriages where the woman has told me that, I ask her, what's the main problem? She's depressed. What's the problem? My husband says I'm fat. I say to her, why does he say that? It's because I'm fat. I'm no marriage counsellor. But this is how the phone conversation goes. I say to her, uh, why are you... Uh, so she says, because my husband doesn't appreciate me, so I sit home and eat. I'm depressed, because he doesn't love me, he doesn't appreciate me, you know. So I say to her, when you got married, were you slim? She says, yes, she was slim when you got married, and her husband was very much attracted to her, and so forth. <coughs> now she's depressed because he doesn't love her, and so she's... So I say to her, well, how do you think this is going to end? So she says, well, if, he, if I show you how depressed I am, and how miserable I am, and he sees how overweight I am because I'm depressed and he's causing me that. He'll wake up and he'll... Re- so at that point I stop the conversation and I say, listen, there's only one way to solve this problem. First of all, starve. <laughs> <laughs> you'll win, you can only win a man... I mean, this is all obvious. This is not spiritual do- truths here. This is just plain, straightforward, ordinary. That's the way it goes. The Bali Musa point out that if you're a man, actually it says, actually the truth is it says that a woman who functions incorrectly, if you have a woman who behaves negatively in a marriage, if a man functions correctly, she will definitely behave correctly. Because a woman was created, what's called as a connector, as a mirror, reflection of what a man does. If you think a woman can behave in such a way that will make a man loving and affectionate and glowing. The mystics say that even more in the opposite direction, if a man will behave in some of the ways that we described before, a woman will definitely be glowing and happy and treat him correctly. Definitely. It says, on the other hand, that if a man treats his wife incorrectly, she will definitely cry. It says that she may be able to do it where he doesn't see, but she will definitely cry. <coughs> the punishment for making your wife cry is horrendous. And I'm prepared to tell you what it is. If you didn't know, then it's more lenient, it says. But now you know. <laughs> One or two more practical applications and we'll leave it at that. There's a lot more to talk about. Next week we'll go to some of the, again, the deeper principles on some other wavelengths and then try and apply them in practice. But along this wavelength, some of the practical expressions of some of these ideas, I'll just give you one or two scenarios that the Balai Musa talk about, in Musa terms in general, but applied in marriage specifically, are basically, if you want to understand this subject, all human self-development boils down to self-control. It boils down to self-control. It's all subsumed under that heading. Practical applications of this sensitivity manifested in terms of self-control would be, give you an example, first of all to be sensitive to what is special to the other person and where they put effort in. For example, man comes home from work, hungry, tired, and she's cooked him a big pot of spinach. That's what's for supper. He's allergic to spinach. <laughs> she forgot. He's not allowed to point it out. Not allowed to point it out. Two reasons. One is, and mentally, psychologically, 
speak on Hogasabais, the book that talks about this, he points it out in the following way. He points it out, he puts it like this. He says that um, the problem is that a man walks into his house thinking that his marriage is a partnership. We began with this idea. He walks in thinking about my obligations and every partner always thinks that he's doing his obligations more than the partner. There's a mystical midrashic source that says there's the chair in heaven, an empty chair that's always empty. It's the chair of the happy partner. Because the partner always thinks that he's carrying out his obligations and the partner's not doing his. So if you regard marriage as a partnership, it will never be successful. And this is what happens. He walks into the house thinking that there's a partnership. You each got your end of the deal to uphold. I've been working hard all day. For sure, I've upheld my end of the deal. What's her end of the deal? To run the house successfully. So what she owes me now as her part of the deal is a decent supper. And from that point on, no supper can be good enough. Because he's not comparing her to what he should be. He's comparing her to the best hotel in town and what he would get there and what in his fantasy. And his so they write like this. He should compare her to what he would have if he didn't have her. He should compare her to what he had when he was a bachelor. He should say to himself, this isn't a partnership. She's doing everything for me. And of course, a woman must think the same for her husband. But men usually get this wrong. That's why I'm putting it on this side. A man's supposed to say, what would I have without this woman? You see, a man's ego tells him, you know who I'd have if it wasn't for this woman. <laughs> I'd have. He thinks that if it wasn't that he was stuck with this woman, whom he'd have at home would be a woman that looks like the pictures the mechanics put up in the garage. <laughs> Who cooks like his mother. Huh? That's what he thinks. But actually, a man is supposed to say to himself, if it wasn't for her, whom would I have? I know who I am. I know who I am. Am I working on myself, really? Do I really deserve a woman who's special, like this woman? I know who I am inside. Pretty empty. And here this woman has given her life to me. That alone, me, this woman must be the biggest balas chesed in the world to marry me. <laughs> that a woman's prepared to give her life to me, she must have an incredible quality of kindness. That she's prepared to give herself to a person like me? That should generate fantastic appreciation. I know who I am and what my lowliness is and where my head is. And here's this beautiful, wonderful, amazing woman who's given her life to me. So you should compare her to what he would have otherwise. Like Rabbi Victor Miller says, look at everything. When you sit down at the table, take note. The first thing is a tablecloth on the table. You know what you had when you were a bachelor? Think back. You used to buy a greasy hamburger and eat it on the yellow pages. And when you finish, you tore out the page. That's <laughs> the... <laughs> 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 so appreciate it. You'd be opening a can of peas right now and eating them cold. So that's why when a man arrives home and a woman's had a tough day and she serves him up with a tremulous hand, a blackened piece of something that's indistinguishable from the sole of his shoe. <laughs> a Jewish husband says to himself, How lucky I am. <laughs> <laughs> you have to listen to this at least daily. <laughs> but that's what he's supposed to say, and that will generate the consciousness that will think. Then, when he wants to point out to her, you see, the problem is that no man can maintain his self control forever. And if he does that and he says, This is wonderful. The problem is that she'll cook spinach again tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> and who can stand that? <laughs> so the way to handle it is like this. You say nothing at the time and you show appreciation. By the way, that's another rule, another law. You show appreciation, you say it's wonderful. 
Three weeks later, when she makes steak and chips, you say to her, this is wonderful, and I even prefer... But you never criticize at the time when the thing's an issue. <coughs> the Baal Musa always point out, I'll give you a famous example. <coughs> there was an example of a great tzaddik in the previous generation who arrived at a home, the Sephardi community. This man arrived in a home with some of his students. He honored that family with a guest. He was a great man of his generation, a great tzaddik, a saintly individual. He arrived at someone's home for a visit. The family were so nervous in anticipation of his visit that the woman had taken the pot of food and she had forgotten and spiced it twice. From the Swadi community where the spice is almost, where the spice is an ordeal at the best of times, she had spiced it twice and there was a young orphan girl living in the home who had spiced it again thinking that the mother hadn't and one of the servants, the maid who normally did the cooking, had spiced the food again. So that by the time it brought to the table it was lethal. <laughs> It's a true story. The true story. In that community, the custom was that the guest was offered the pot first. It was brought to the table in a serving dish. He was offered the pot first and he helped himself and then he passed it to the head of the household and they passed it around the table. The tzaddik took his helping of food and as he tasted it, the husband was busy helping himself. So he said in a very quiet voice to the husband, Do as I do. <laughs> he ate everything on his plate and took the pot back and served himself another helping and served the husband a big helping. <laughs> And they continued thus until the pot was finished. Nobody else at the table tasted it. So the whole pot was finished. When he finished, the, he said to the woman, This is wonderful. Is there any more left? She said, Well, there's a little bit in the pot in the kitchen. He said, Ring it. <laughs> so they brought the pot from the kitchen and he and the husband carefully scraped it out until there was nothing left. Afterwards, the students asked him in private, Rebbe, how could you do such a thing? You did, what you did was nothing short of a chilul Hashem. In front of many people, you showed downright greed. You finished all the food. So explain to them what had happened. And he said that if I wouldn't have done that, can you imagine what that woman would have felt? And can you imagine what would have been, what would have happened between her and her husband? And therefore, those are some of the practical applications of this area. In summary... It is the awareness and appreciation that each partner functions on a wavelength not only different from oneself, but opposite to the way one functions. Exactly that. And the kindness of marriage, which is what a chesed is, the, the, the summary of what marriage is, is doing gvura on yourself and chesed on the other one. Self-control and discipline on yourself and an outpouring of love on the other. We always turn it around. We try and discipline the other and we try and be lenient with ourselves. The ideal in marriage in all human relationships, is to discipline yourself and be loving and kindly and not critical of the other. <laughs> the kindliness of marriage is knowing what the other person's needs are. That they function not the same way that you do. That they have needs that you can't begin to understand. A man can't understand why his wife would get offended if he mentions something about the food. He's a practical chap and it doesn't bother him if somebody tells him, let's say. But he doesn't understand that. That love means understanding that. And she, her love means understanding the way he functions. I want to make one final comment and we'll leave it there for this evening. We'll try and get to the areas that we omitted next week and please...
feel free to write any points down that we specifically weren't covered, and then before we finish the next session, try to cover those areas that may be difficult, try and deal with second marriages and things that we didn't talk about tonight. Try and deal with parents-in-law also, try to talk about how to interfere successfully. <laughs> but one final area that's in halacha, written in halacha, is this. One of the most important keys, apart from what we said tonight, is an awareness that there are specific roles, areas, that a woman has, and roles where a husband has authority. Now, Allah has written clearly in this area, and therefore a person should always know not to interfere in the areas where the woman is supposed to have authority, and she should never interfere or comment in areas where he has authority. Try and understand this carefully. Very briefly, another few minutes, and we'll leave it at that. First of all, there's a halacha that before you do anything, you're supposed to ask a wife, and vice versa. Even if it's in your field, you're supposed to ask her. If a man has to make a professional decision, the halacha is he has to discuss it with his wife first. Not a technical professional decision. If you're a brain surgeon, you don't have to ask her whether you operate in this fashion or in that fashion. <laughs> but if it's a decision relating to your professional life, you're obliged to discuss it with your wife first. You don't have to take her advice. You don't have to listen to her. But you have to discuss it and hear what she says. The Gemara brings examples of the Nasi of the Sanhedrin. Appointed as head of the Jewish people before he accepted the position he went, he was 17 years old. But other minutes, I went home to ask his wife. She gave him good advice and he went home and answered. That's an absolute requirement. It's a halacha that you should discuss it with your subordinates also, by the way. If you run an office or a business, before you take a major decision, you have to discuss it with your subordinates, even though you don't have to take that advice. But your wife, it's a downright obligation. You have to discuss it. But, apart from that, when you make a decision, if the decision is in her area, you must not make the decision. Let's just understand this clearly. First of all, there's an overriding principle. This is straightforward halacha. First of all, there's an overriding principle that if you set up the marriage on an agreement that a certain area will fall under her jurisdiction or his, then you have to stick to that and you're allowed to do that. For example, the classical area is money. There's no explicit halacha who handles the finances. Not written in halacha anyway. And therefore, the, the ballet halacha, the boys can, they write, people who write about this, they state that when you set up a marriage, the way the money will be handled must be made explicit from the beginning. One of the biggest areas of tension is how the money is spent. It's enough to wreck a marriage. And therefore, one must decide in the beginning that either you will have a certain budget and she will have a budget, or you will give her a certain budget, or she will handle the finances and she'll give you an allowance. It doesn't matter what the, what the agreement is. They all come within the scope of aloha. But it has to be agreed on and stuck to. Otherwise, you'll have a constant tension. One of the saddest things in marriage is that the explosions that happen in marriage are almost always about the same old thing that you've been exploding about up till now. It's very seldom in a marriage that something new will take you by surprise and have a fight about something you didn't have about before. That silly tragedy of marriage is that you go through the same things again and again and again. And this is one of the classics. There's also an overriding principle, I'm not going to justify it tonight, that if agreement cannot be reached in one of these areas, the man has the final authority. Actually, if you really want to know accurately, it says that if it is something that relates to spiritual living, he has the final authority. And if it's something that relates to practical, real-time living, then she has the final say. Actually, that's a lot. Anything relating to practical, finite reality, the woman's the final authority. And anything relating to the spiritual world is the woman's. The wife of Rabbi Sol Salanta always used to say, when they used to ask her who makes the decision, she used to say, well, when it's a practical area, I'm supposed to make the decision, but he actually, he always shows me how actually it's a spiritual issue, and then he decides. And what she says. But anyway, that's a But apart from money, there are some specific areas, okay? And a person should always remember this. And the areas are as follows. The kitchen... And the cooking and the food is the woman's area. It should never intrude unless invited. Whatever she decides to do, you relish, you love it, and you say so and show appreciation. Except at a time when it's not a threat at all, as I pointed out. 
that is entirely the woman's area, unless, of course, this is all subject to not having made an explicit agreement. If a man happens to be a fantastic cook and the woman's a test pilot or a brain surgeon <laughs> or something, and that's how they want to set up the marriage, it's allowed within halakha. It's absolutely allowed. But unless stated otherwise, the default position is that the kitchen and the cooking and the physical sustenance of the home and the marriage is entirely on her shoulders. One. Two. The dressing of the children, the way the children are dressed, is entirely in her hands. Right? If he thinks they look bizarre, it doesn't matter. He tells her that they look beautiful and adjusted. The physical appointment of the home. Where the home is, again with the exception of if it has a spiritual element, if it's nearer the shore or the yeshiva or something like that, then he has the authority, again has to be discussed, if the two areas conflict, in this area he has the final say. But where the home, in terms of the physical location and appearance of the home, and the furnishings, and everything that happens in terms of the physical reality of the home, she has the absolute and final authority. Person has to know that. Men usually get weak at the sight of the furniture being rearranged every two weeks. Right? <laughs> a man cannot understand why his chair that he loved, that had to be in this position, now is it, especially when he's the one who has to move it around every time. <laughs> According to the halacha, that is something that you take on when you marry a woman, the way she wants the furniture arranged, the way she wants the house painted, coloured, all the decorations, all the decor, everything in the house, she's supposed to discuss with him. Just like we said the other way around, but the final decision he says, if she paints the walls pink with purple spots, he thinks it's wonderful and he's supposed to say so. That's a lot. There are some areas where the man has the final authority, and those are the areas that relate to the spiritual area, what's called Milidishmaya. Anything that's called Milidishmaya, for example, the Torah education of the children, um, where they daven, the shul, things that are directly connected to Torah and Torah living, the man has, he again he has to discuss with her, even though it's in his domain, but you'll find that if a person obeys these rules, it takes away the basis of most of the arguments and fights, with the exception of the intimate area, which we're not discussing now, which relates to many of these things. But in the technical areas where couples usually end up arguing, is because there's not a correct split of who's the final authority in these two areas. And if a couple will remember that it just isn't your problem, it's just not your area, and don't intrude into that area to try and tell her how to do it. Men often have a need to intrude, not only intrude in women, but then tell her how to do it more logically. How that she's not doing it logically, she's not doing it the right way, and so forth. That never yields any benefit. And therefore... The person applies that. So you have here a structure. First of all, you have the spiritual structure of what is a man, what is a woman. In most cases, in many cases, I think in most cases, you'll find that <laughs> the couple, the people fit into these two categories, at least generally. And if you respect and know how to honor that image, which is the person in their beauty, spiritually, that takes away most of the problem. Secondly, you focus on kindliness. It's doing only for the other person and not taking for yourself. The only way to generate happiness and to be given a lot is when you give a lot in marriage. It only works that way. As soon as you try and take, the giving stops. As soon as you try and give and stop taking, then you start being given. That's the way it will try and discuss it more next week. And thirdly, the person should remember, summarizing briefly, that there are certain areas and it pays to respect the areas of authority. If you don't cross the lines and you don't intrude on the other person's area, they'll be run correctly. And if you need to intrude, you do it at a time when it's not an issue. You do it when asked for advice, you do it at another time, you do it when it's not an issue. If a person remembers these three basic areas, a person would be amazed that they can turn around the situation which this generation is in, which is a thorough misery. The heart of the misery of this generation is the battery that goes on in marriage. That's the heart of the anxiety and depression of this generation. That's why people are feeling the way they do about the world. People would glow with happiness if the marriages were intact. The mystics say that if a man treats his wife correctly, she will uncontrollably glow. If you want to know if a man is treating his wife correctly, Mystical sources say that if you want to know if you are behaving correctly towards God, you must look at how people think about you. It's a very good, not perfect, but a very good indicator. 
You want to know how people think about you, assess accurately how your wife feels about you. And if she's glowing, she's permanently glowing, you're doing right. The very, very few and far between homes these days where each of the couple walks around with a warm glow emanating visibly because of the way the other person is treating them. But if that happens, then life becomes a song. And if person, if we can remember to apply, go over these three areas, in we can turn around this pain of this generation, which begins here, and bring in session the good.